Let's take out our worksheets. Heaven on earth, number 14. Number 14, believe it or not, we are past the halfway mark now. We're going to 25 and we're up to 14. Halfway was right there between 12 and 13 and we're on the downhill side. But hopefully things aren't going downhill. Hopefully they're only getting better and better. And what I want to show, share with you tonight is, is a message that I truly, truly, truly enjoy presenting because it's such a fascinating topic. It's about the sanctuary and God's encampment in ancient Israel. And you might be thinking, well, what on earth does ancient Israel and tents in the wilderness have to do with us today? Oh, and that's going to be the powerful part. We're just setting the stage. In fact, this is going to be part one, what we're going to see tomorrow, or not tomorrow, next time we're together <laughs> on Tuesday evening is going to be the fulfillment of this, the completion of this. So we're going to set a framework tonight, put a structure in your mind from the Bible that we're going to fill up and give substance and significance to tomorrow, uh, next time we're together. Got to stop that. Okay. Is it tomorrow? I like it when I'm accidentally right. <laughs> You'll be here. Fantastic. And we'll have all the worksheets ready to go. And if I'm not here, just have a big Bible study together. That's no problem. All right. But we're going to give the structure at this presentation and fill it out more fully at the next presentation. Does that make sense? Okay, that's a good start. But before we get started with this message, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity and especially for this particular topic. Lord, we want to understand how you operate and we want to see what you've revealed to us, how we should operate as your people. So Lord, teach us tonight from your word. Help us to see things perhaps that we've never seen before, but Lord, make it clear. And Lord, let it not only be theory, but help us to see the practical application that we can take what we've learned and be transformed into the image of your son, Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Heaven on earth. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. It's going to be page 75 in your pew Bible. Exodus chapter 25, that second book in the Bible, way back in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 25. Now, of course, the term Exodus means to come out, to exit. And this story of Exodus, the book of Exodus, chronicles the, the experience of the Israelites after they've come out of the land of Egypt. The Lord has called them out to be his distinct people, his holy nation. It's a fascinating history. When they went into Israel, I mean, in, Israel went into Egypt, there was about 70 people, the Bible says. 215 years later, they come out of Egypt including the mixed multitude, close to two million people, okay? So they come out a great mass of people, and the Lord leads them out, takes them out of Egypt at the Exodus, leads them to Mount Sinai, which we find in Exodus chapter 20 when he hands down to Moses the Ten Commandment law. But here we are, five chapters later, Moses is still on the mountain, the people are still at the foot of the mountain, and the Lord gives further instruction than just the Ten Commandments. Now, I'm, I would imagine that most Christians would have in their mind that Exodus chapter 20, the Lord gives the Ten Commandments, and well, I don't really know what else the book of Exodus talks about, right? He leads them out of Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai, gives them the Ten Commandment law, and then, I don't know, some other stuff. Okay? But let's see what the other stuff is that the Lord had in mind, specifically chapter 25. And we'll just start with verse 1. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they may bring me a what? An offering. They're going to bring things to the Lord, something that the Lord wants from them. Very specifically, he says, from everyone who gives it how? Willingly. Okay? With his heart you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. And he lists off a whole lot of materials, stuff. Gold, silver, and bronze. Blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to set in the ephod and in the breastplate. So he has a whole list of items, of materials that he wants collected freely from the children of Israel. What's he going to do with all these things? Verse 8. And let them make me a what? Sanctuary. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Now let's take that verse and digest it for just a moment. Let them make me a sanctuary. As we look at the structure, who's going to build this building, this edifice, this structure? They are, right? So he says, have them collect all these materials, and what are they going to do with it? They will build this building, but who's the building for? For me, right? They will build me, and he calls this place a sanctuary. Okay? Sanctuary. Sanctify means to make something holy. This is going to be a holy place. It's going to be the Lord's own dwelling. In fact, he says it right there. What's the purpose of the sanctuary? That I may do what? Dwell where? Among them. He said, I want them to collect all these materials and they will build me a sanctuary for the purpose that I might dwell among them. He says, I want them to make me a dwelling place. And in our common vernacular, we would call a dwelling place your what? Your house. Of course, they lived in tents at that point, but they're going to make the Lord's tent. This is his dwelling place, his abode, his what he called sanctuary, this holy place, because God... By the way, God's the only thing that makes something holy, right? We've talked about that. When he set the Sabbath day apart, God makes that holy. When he spoke to Moses at the burning bush, he said, take off your shoes for the ground you're standing on is what? Holy ground. What made the ground holy? The presence of God. There's not just some areas that are quarantined. Oh, that's holy. That one's fine. No, no, no. It's the presence of God there. In this tent made of these materials, was it going to be inherently special? No. But its inhabitant would make it special, right? He is going to dwell in this. This is going to be the Lord's tent. He says, collect all these materials, have them make a sanctuary for me. But then it goes on in verse 9. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Now, the materials are going to come from the people. The building is going to be put together by the people. But the concept of what it's supposed to look like comes from the Lord. The pattern, or if you're going to build a house, what's the plan called? They call that a blueprint, right? The Lord has a plan, a blueprint in mind for his own house, and he says, you're going to make my house, and you're going to make it according to my specifications. Very rarely, in fact, I don't know that I would ever do, come up to to a contractor, give them all the money, say, go buy materials, and I want you to build me a house. But you make it how you'd like. 
You just go crazy. Whatever you think you would like, I'll learn to like it. No, it's my money. It's my authority. You're going to make my house according to my specifications. And the Lord says basically the same thing. There's a plan, there's a pattern, there's a blueprint, and I want you to build according to my plan. Now, I want you to see that again in verse 9. According to all that I show you, how would Moses know what to build? According to the text, how is he going to know what to build? God's going to show it to them. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Even the furniture itself. He didn't just say make it generally like this. He said, I want you to make it according to the pattern, just so, even down to the furnishings. Every detail of this dwelling place of God was supposed to be built on a pattern that God would show Moses. Is that making sense so far? Okay, let's continue on now. By the way, the rest of the book of Exodus, the entire rest of the book of Exodus, with the only exception being the apostasy in Exodus 33 with the golden calf, the rest of the book of Exodus is about the construction of the furnishings and all the different elements and the final configuration of the entire tabernacle. The rest of the book of Exodus, right to verse, I mean, chapter 40, when the Lord actually comes and takes possession, moves into his house, is all about the building of this sanctuary, which is fascinating. Almost half of the entire book of Exodus is dealt on this building and its structures. Apparently, it's pretty important to the Lord. The Ten Commandments, very important to the Lord, and there's one chapter devoted to explaining them, saying what they are. But the rest of the book, by and large, is about this particular building. It's very important to the Lord. So we'll start off and notice what his very first thing he says is. The very first piece of furniture is called the Ark of the Covenant. Start with verse 18. Skip down here. We're not going to be able to read every bit, but I want to highlight some of the things. The very first piece of furniture the Lord wants is the Ark of the Covenant. You shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Now, if you go back to verse 10, it would give the basic structure of this ark. And an ark is simply a container, right? Moses' ark was a big boat, that held all the animals and the people who were faithful. This ark, Noah, did I say Moses? They'll edit it on the tape, don't worry. Noah's ark, right, was a big boat that contained all the people to keep them safe. This ark was supposed to contain something, and it was supposed to represent something in heaven. Well, we'll go on and see. And it describes all the dimensions of it, and basically what it is is a box of a particular length and height and width and depth, all the different dimensions. He was very clear about it. And he told them to make it out of wood and to cover it with gold. Okay. And verse 17, let's go back here. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 16. And you shall put into the ark the testimony with a capital T, which I will give you. Of course, what is the testimony that the Lord gave to Moses on the mountain? The Ten Commandment Law. He said this is the box that's going to contain the Ten Commandment Law, which, of course, the law of God is the whole basis of his government talked about that, the law of love. Now, verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits shall be its length and a cubit and a half of its width. So it's a lid on this box, this ark, 
And verse 18, as we just read, you shall make two cherubim, that is, angels of gold, of hammered works you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at two ends of it one, of one piece with the mercy seat. By the way, this is supposed to represent, this is the very, very heart, the very middle, the innermost place of God's dwelling place. Of course, we're going to find out that his dwelling place has multiple rooms. There's a most holy place, then there's a holy place, and then there's a courtyard. Three distinct areas or divisions of God's house. But this piece of furniture was going to go in the innermost, in the most holy place, and it's inside of it is where the ark, I mean, inside the ark is where the Ten Commandments go, and on the lid, you have these two angels, and you see later on there, the wings are going to fold over, and it creates this space on the lid which represents the throne of God, the very seat of God's government. And the seat, fascinating enough, is called the mercy seat. I love that it's called the mercy seat. The mercy seat is on top of God's law. It's not called the seat of damnation, right? Or the seat of, uh, the seat of wrath. No, it's called the seat of mercy. God wants us to be, he wants to be a merciful God. God is a merciful God, and he describes his throne, his own dwelling place, in that way. Well, we continue on. Let's go to the next one. Let's go to Exodus 25, now verse 31. We're, we're just going to keep going down. I'm sorry, verse 23. The next piece of furniture in the holy place. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, and a cubit its width, and a cubit and half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold all around. Okay? So now he's going to make this table which is called the table of showbread. Okay, now verse 30 says, and you shall set the showbread on the table before me always. So basically what we're seeing is God's furnishing his house from the inside out. Starting in the most holy place, there's only one piece of furniture, and that's called the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Testimony, because it contains the Ten Commandment law of God, and it's the seat of God's government. One piece of furniture in the most holy place moving out, which by the way, there's a diagram at the bottom you can follow along. There's this table of showbread. There's three pieces of furniture in the holy place. The first one mentioned in the Bible is the table of showbread. But now we go to verse 31. The next piece of furniture in the holy place. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work, its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and its flowers shall be of one piece. Verse 32 continues. And six branches shall come out of its sides. Three branches of the, lamp, of the lampstand out of one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side. So you have the central pillar, and you have three branches out of each side, giving a total number of branches at seven. Six of the branches and the one centerpiece, right? Three Three and one. Seven. This is what we have, is this seven-branched candlestick. Okay? The lampstand. And what's supposed to happen with it? It would burn continually before the Lord. You can find that in Exodus chapter 27. But now let's go to chapter 30 of Exodus. We're just doing a very quick 
overview of the different pieces of furniture because God was very particular about the building of his dwelling place. Exodus chapter 30 and verse 1. You shall make an altar to burn incense on. You shall make it of acacia wood. So he's going to make an altar of incense, the third piece of furniture that goes into the holy place. Skip down to verse 6. And you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. So apparently, if you have your little diagram there at the bottom, the most holy place has this one piece of furniture, which is the ark of the covenant, where the testimony of God is kept. And the mercy seat of God's throne is there. Then this dividing line is like a veil. There is a literal physical veil that covered a a separation, a partition between the two rooms. And you'd move out to the holy place where you would find the table of showbread and the lampstand. But the piece of furniture closest to the holy place, closest to the most holy place, is this altar of incense. Okay? So that's the one that comes right up to the veil between the holy and the most holy place. And that's what's contained in the holy place. Now let's move out to the courtyard. Exodus chapter 27. Let's just go back a few pages. Exodus chapter 27. And verse 1. You shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. In verse 2, it says, You shall make its horns of, of its four corners. Its horns shall be one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Now, if you'll notice in your, in your notes there that, that that little piece is kind of, to save space, that little piece was missing. But please understand, they made a wooden structure and covered it with bronze. You would not want to burn things on a wooden altar without some sort of <laughs> separation between them, correct? So there's a wooden altar, but it's overlaid with bronze, thus they call it the bronze altar, where they would burn sacrifices on, okay? The altar of burnt offering, or the altar of burnt sacrifice, as it became known. Now let's go down to verse, chapter 30, one more time to chapter 30, for our final piece of furniture. Verse 18 of Exodus 30. You shall also make a laver, that is a bowl or a basin of bronze, with its base also a bronze, for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. Okay, so we can take this now. If we take our little outline, we have the basic structure in our minds that there are three distinct divisions or three distinct rooms, if you will, of God's house. There's the courtyard, then the holy place, and then the what? Most holy place. Okay? In the courtyard, the very first thing you would run into is the altar of burnt offering or the altar of sacrifice. The very first furnishing you would run into. Beyond that, you would have this laver that they would do the ceremonial washing with, and then you'd have a partition and you would enter into the holy place. But let me be very clear. You wouldn't enter into the holy place. Someone does, and we'll get into that tomorrow as we uh, continue the study, but people would come to the courtyard, make their sacrifices, then a priest would go into the holy place. And inside the holy place, they would see those three pieces of furniture. On the north, you would find the table of showbread. 
On the south side, you would have these seven-branch candlesticks, and right up next to the most holy place divider, the veil or the curtain, you would find the altar of incense, where incense was continually burned before the Lord. Now, I'm not asking you to understand what it all means. I just want to get the structure in your head, okay? Then, if you passed into the most holy place, you would find the one piece of furniture that's there, which is the Ark of the Testimony, the Ark of the Covenant, inside of which is contained the Ten Commandment Law of God. On top of it, you would have these two angels that would be uh, their wings reverently bowed over, and then that space that's created on the lid is called the mercy seat, and that's where God's actual presence would dwell. Okay? So it would go from the courtyard to the holy place to the most holy place, and if you were to walk through, you'd see an, uh, an altar for burnt sacrifices, the laver for ceremony washing, then you'd go through to the next room. Then you'd see the table of showbread, the seven-branch candlestick, and the altar of incense. Then you'd go through another divider into the most holy place, and you'd be there in the very presence of God with this ark of the testimony upon which the mercy seat rests. I hope that's clear, that this is what the Lord had in mind. These are the particulars that, and notice that we just skimmed very quickly. They went down to excruciating detail. Every little ring, every little pole, every little support structure, every little ornament, every detail. The Lord said, I want you to make it this size, like this, out of this material, and make it just so you shall make it. I go through this study, A, to put this structure in mind, but also B, the Lord was incredibly particular about the details and plans of his dwelling place. Okay? Not just the rooms and not just the size, but every aspect of it, he had a very detailed plan for its construction. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's move on. Go to the other side of the page then. Now, that was the Lord's provision, his instruction for his own dwelling place, his tent, his sanctuary, as he called it. Now, this particular aspect, from my childhood, I've been aware of the basic structure of God's tabernacle. That's the courtyard, the holy place, the most holy place. Each piece of furniture kind of have a picture in your head. It's a very simple structure, honestly. Three rooms and only, you know, what, five, six pieces of furniture? How easy is that? How hard is that? Now, what I did not understand is that God had the same level of precision for ordering the rest of the camp that he had for ordering his own tent within the camp. Okay? So the picture I always had is the Lord's house was very particular. Of course, it's going to be his house. It's his dwelling place. And he has the courtyard, holy place, most holy place, each piece of furniture, every dimension, every aspect, everything taken care of right down to the letter. And once that was created, once that was established, the Lord filled it, and then the rest of the camp of Israel just kind of, you know, pitched a tent out in the desert. You know, just, all right, go find your spot, camp around. But what I want to show you now is that the same care, the same precision with which the Lord established his own tent, the Lord arranged for the establishment of the rest of the tents of Israel. That the entire camp, not just the sanctuary, but the entire camp, was designed by the Lord for some specific reason. Okay? Now, we'll get to what that reason is at the end of the message, but I want you to see what we're going to deal with next is the physical arrangement of the camp. So let's go into that now. Go to the book of Numbers. Numbers, chapter 2. 
That's going to be page 124 in your pew Bible. Numbers, appropriately enough, begins with a census. Okay? The book of Numbers deals exactly with that. If you, in fact, the, the books of Moses are very, almost uncreatively named. Genesis means the beginning, right? And that's where you read, in the beginning, God created the heavens. It begins, right? Exodus means to come out. So God's people coming up out of Egypt and getting established as people. Leviticus deals with the priests who were from the tribe of Levi and all the different priests and all the different services and things that would go on in their terms of service. And here we have the book of Numbers, and it begins with a counting of the people, an arranging of the people. So chapter 1 is a big census, and then we get to chapter 2, and look at verse 1. Numbers chapter 2 and verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own, what's that word? Standard. Now what, he gives another synonym here, beside the, what's that next word? Emblems of his father's house. They shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. So again, the tabernacle of meeting, what is God's sanctuary, his holy place, I mean his entire encampment there, his dwelling place, is the center of the entire camp of Israel. Okay? But now he's going to go beyond his own tent and instruct the Israelites how and where to arrange their tents in proximity to his tent. Does that make sense? Okay. So God starts with his, and now he's going to arrange the rest of the camp around it. Okay. Now, with that in mind, how is he going to do it? Well, let's back up now to verse 53 of the previous chapter. Chapter 1, just back up to verse 53. Oh, in fact, I'm sorry, verse 52. The children of Israel shall pitch their tents, every one by his own camp, every one by his own standard, according to their armies. So again, he has this idea that every, everyone pitches their tent according to their family group. Okay? Now it says in verse 53, but there's one exception. The Levites shall camp around where? The tabernacle of the testimony. That there may be no wrath on the congregation of the children of Israel, and the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. So again, we have this concept that the centerpiece of the camp is the tabernacle of the testimony, God's sanctuary, his tent. The tribe of Israel, the family group of Israel that that camps closest to and in fact surrounds the tabernacle is the tribe of what? Levi. And the answer is given there very plainly. What was the purpose, one of the purposes for the Levites being encamped around the tabernacle? They're going to care for it, right? Of course, the children of, not all the Levites were priests, only the children of Aaron were, the sons of Aaron were priests, but Aaron came from the tribe of Levi. So all the sons of Aaron, you'll find out later, are priests, and everyone else are the physical caretakers of the tabernacle of meeting. And of course, you realize that the tabernacle, the sanctuary, was all portable. It was built so it could be established and then taken down and moved as the Lord would lead his people to the promised land. Okay? So these people, the Levites, were the ones who would care for all the different articles and different pieces, and they would put it up and tear it down. They were the physical laborers, as well as the family of Aaron, the sons of Aaron, were the spiritual laborers. They were the priests. 
but the Levites were the caretakers, and so they would camp around the tabernacle. Now, let's go back to this concept that everyone else was supposed to camp by their own standard. Let's go back to verse 54 of chapter 1. Thus the children of Israel did, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they did. And now we go back to chapter 2, verse 1. What was the thing they did again? The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard, beside the emblems of his father's house. They shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. Now think about this. Everyone was supposed to camp with their own family, and each family had a standard or an emblem. Or you can think of it as a logo or an icon, a picture that represents their tribe, their family unit. Okay? So you had a flag, if you will, or a banner that would be planted in the ground, and it would wave up in the air, and it have a picture on it, and that would look like your family, you know? If anyone, if you're from Scotland all, you know they have a specific outline, a plaid that goes with your family. And they have all these different family, you know, tartans that you can look and see the different design. Oh, that one looks like my family. That color represents, you know. And even nowadays with nations you have, a, or states or different governments, you have uh, animals or some sort of logo, some sort of emblem that represents your territory, your nation. For instance, if you were to talk about the, the nation on earth represented by the dragon, who would that be? China, right? Or if you were thinking of, you know, that nation with the bear, that'd be Russia, right? You think about these. United States of America has an eagle, perhaps, or a buffalo or something like that. You, it's iconic. You say, oh, that represents where I'm from. No problem. The same thing happened with the children of Israel. Each family, each family unit, each family group, each tribe had an emblem, a banner, a standard, as the Bible says, that would represent their household. Now, let's think about this just from a logistic standpoint, you have nearly two million people out in the desert camping in tents that I'm guessing all look pretty much alike, right? That's a big group, right? That's a, and that is, has a potential to be a big mess, right? Put all these people who have been enslaved for the last couple hundred years, or at least a hundred plus years, Bring them out in the desert and say, now, go. Well, what are you going to get? You're going to get chaos. The Lord says, no, no, no. I want you to build my house first. And then from that, that's going to be the anchor point. And I want you to build the rest of the camp surrounding it in this way. It says, first of all, each family get together. Everyone's got their own logo, their own emblem or banner, their standard. Now, this seems like a very archaic, what, you just have a stick in the ground and you have a flag up there and that's how you know. That's, this is brilliant, folks. Think about it. I, I spent uh, a bit of time in central Florida. I lived in central Florida for several years. And for some reason, people go there to vacation. Each to their own, I guess. But <clears throat> one of the things that central Florida has are some of the largest attractions, the largest theme parks in all the world. I mean, we're talking about Disney World and, and Epcot Center and, and Bush Gardens and all these different places that literally millions of people go to every year. These places are enormously large, and the parking lots that go with them are proportionally large to the venue. 
right? So if you have a big, big place that's going to hold tens of thousands of people at one point, you have to have a parking lot that fits tens of thousands of cars, literally, right? These parking lots are so large that they don't expect you to park your car and walk to the front door. You park your car, and they come by with a little shuttle bus and pick you up and drive you to the front door. It's that big of a parking lot. In fact, if you were to get out of your car, walk to the front door, your day is done. You go home. You're like, well, that was fun. And you go back to your car. All you've done is walk across the parking lot and come back. It's huge. So they anticipate that. You pull up in your car, and they come get you in a little trolley, a little tram, a little bus, take you to the front door. And then you go have your fun in the amusement park. And there's rides, and there's light flashing things, there's music, there's, you know, very much not healthy things to eat. You know, you eat funnel cakes, and you're spinning upside down, you have a whole day of it, and you've gotten a sunburn, and for some reason people call that fun, but whatever. So, you come out after that day thinking you're supposed to be happy, but in reality you're miserable, you've got a pounding headache, and now you have to look for your what? Car. And you look out over that setting sun, and you see just a, a sea of twinkling, shining little reflections. Now, I, for instance, drive a compact silver SUV. Do you think the odds are pretty good that there's another silver SUV at Disney World? Absolutely there is. And probably not just one. Probably maybe two, three, four thousand of them, right? And you look out of the great sea, and you're all spinning, and you're like, where do I go? Right? And you know what you don't do? You don't go looking for your car. They don't expect you to find your car, right? And you can say, well, these days I'll just take out the key fob, but we're talking about acres and miles of parking lot, right? And their range is only a couple hundred feet, maybe, and you're like, you're not going to find it on your own. So the bus comes along, picks you up again, and they say, where am I taking you? And you don't say, please take me to the silver SUV, Right? Because that's ridiculous. <laughs> You'd be stopping every 10 feet, right? So what do you look for? Well, they have anticipated this problem long in advance of your arrival. When you park your car at Disney World, you don't look down and see where you are in the parking lot. You look up, and they've got a big pole with a big flag on it near where you parked your car that has, like, Donald Duck in a funny pair of sunglasses or something, you know, or a silly this, or a chipmunk, or some sort, of, some sort of picture. You're not looking for your car. You're looking for Goofy in a sombrero or something. That's what you're looking for. So you're saying, take me to the dolphin. And they're like, that I know. And once you see that, you're like, all right, I remember where I was aligned with this. And you start getting your bearings according to these flags that are in the parking lot. It's the same idea from Scripture. Basically, God said, look, my tent, my sanctuary, my dwelling place is going to be the centerpiece of your camp. But the rest of the camp is not going to devolve down into chaos. Each family, you're going to have an icon. You're going to have an emblem, a banner that's going to represent you. And all of you are going to camp around it. And you don't just pick a random place. You're going to be aligned next to another camp and another camp and another camp all the way around. And I'll show you how to do it. This is what Numbers chapter 2 is all about. Watch this now. We start with verse uh, 3. Look here. On the east side, toward the rising of the sun, those are the standard of the forces with what tribe? Judah. Now, I'm going to move this right now and make this, if you will, 
the centerpiece of the camp. Let's say that this is the sanctuary. This is God's tabernacle, his dwelling place. Are we good? Okay, now, on the east side will be the, uh, Judah, right? The standard of the camp of Judah. Now, think about this. There are 12 tribes of Israel, and there's a four-sided tabernacle. How many must be encamped on each side? Three to make it even and symmetrical, right? That's what we're going for here. Now, it says here, on the east side, toward the rising of the sun, shall be the standard of the forces with Judah. Okay? Now, now for you, east would be this way-ish, this way-ish. I'm going to make it from your perspective so it hopefully makes sense. Okay, east, Judah. But it's not just Judah on that side. He's the main. There's a cardinal direction camp, right? There's one family that represents each cardinal direction. But along with them, we would expect to find two other camps, right? So it goes on to say, verse 5, those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of whom? Issachar. Okay? Now go to verse 7. Then comes the tribe of Zebulon. So you'd have Judah is the main camp, and right next to Judah you have Issachar, and Zebulon. Okay? That's east. Now, let's go on to verse 10. On the south side, which to you would be this way? This way? Right? Help me get my bearings, right? I want to keep you straight, and in order to have that, you have to keep me straight. Okay? On the south side, verse 10, shall be the standard of the forces with whom? Reuben. Reuben is the main tribe on the south side. According to their armies, and it goes on in verse 12, those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon. And then verse 14, then comes the tribe of Gad. So you have Reuben, Simeon, and Gad representing the south side. Now moving over to the west, okay? Let's go to verse 18. On the west side shall be the standard with the forces of Ephraim. So Ephraim makes up the main western tribe there. Verse 20, next to him comes the tribe of Manasseh. And verse 22, then comes the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, so three on this side with one being the main cardinal direction. And finally on the south side, I'm sorry, finally on the north side, verse 25, the standard of the forces with Dan shall be on the north side according to their armies. Verse 27, those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher. And verse 29, then comes the tribe of Naphtali. So now we have outlined all around the camp each cardinal direction, Judah, Reuben, Ephraim, and Dan, has a main representative, and alongside of those, you have adjacent tribes that camp with them. Okay? And I know this seems like minutia, and you're like, how does this change my life? We're getting there. Just follow along. Now, let's do one more thing. One more organization before we show what it all means. Go to First Chronicles. First Chronicles, it's going to be page 402 in your pew Bible. First Chronicles chapter 24. Now again, the one family tribe were the Levites who camped the closest, and they camped all the way around. Every other one had one place, one place, one place, but the Levites were spread all the way around the tabernacle. Okay? And of course, 
the sons of Aaron were the priests that worked spiritual function in the tabernacle of meeting. Later on, when they became settled in the promised land, there was a further division of the sons of Aaron into their rounds of service. So they would camp according to their rounds of service. So they would be sequential, this one, then this one, then this one, then this one, all the way around the camp. So it's like a clock or a calendar going all year round, and each one would have a round of service. They would just go all the way around. Okay? But notice how many divisions there were. I find this fascinating. I'll show you why in a minute. First Chronicles 24, let's start with verse 1. Now, these are the divisions of the sons of Aaron. And again, the sons of Aaron, their rob was to be the priests, right? The sons of Aaron were Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. He had four children, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar, at least four sons. But of course, two of those died prematurely, namely Nadab and Abihu. You can read about that also in Scripture, and that was a tragic incident. But it says here in verse 2, and Nadab and Abihu died before their father and had, what? No children. So it's hard to divide up their lineage when they didn't have any. So it's down to Eliezer and Ithamar. So therefore, it says, Eliezer and Ithamar ministered as priests. And the rest of chapter 24 continues on, at least down to verse 19, of naming off all of the offspring who were the heads of these households, and that would be their round of service as they encamped around the sanctuary. And we'll skip down to verse, let's say, verse 18. Because it just counts them off one by one by one. And I would read it all to you, but A, it's not that particularly interesting, and B, I can't pronounce the names anyway. So it would just be awkward for all of us. But notice here verse 18. The 23rd to Deliah, the 24th, to Messiah. And that's the end of the list. How many people were in the list? 24. Okay, verse 19. This was the schedule of their service for coming into the house of the Lord according to their ordinance by the hand of Aaron their father, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded him. Was this Aaron's idea to divide them up into these 24 divisions? No, the Lord had specifically told him, all right, we're going to take the the sons of Aaron, your children here, and we're going to divide them, subdivide them into 24 groups for how many offspring they happen to happen to have 24. Now, I think that's all fascinating, and you're, th- and you're thinking, why does any of this matter? Now, let's see. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. Back towards the end of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews Chapter 8, page 1152. We'll start with verse 1. Hebrews chapter 8, starting with verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. So the first seven chapters apparently are building up to this. This is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty where? In the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Now, wait a minute. Go back to the very beginning of our study. Who was supposed to build the one that Moses was given the instruction for? The people, right? 
They were supposed to bring the materials. They were supposed to build it. And the Lord directed and guided, but they were the ones who built it. But apparently there is a true tabernacle in heaven that the Lord built and not man. Okay? So where do you think this pattern, this plan, this blueprint for what Moses was supposed to build on earth came from? The one that was in heaven. Okay? Now, this is a powerful thought. So, by the way, when it says there's a true tabernacle, it doesn't mean that the one on earth was the false tabernacle. Right? It doesn't mean true and false. That means original versus the scale model or the substance versus the shadow. The real thing, the true one, is in heaven. And that's where Jesus, our high priest, is ministering today. So apparently, all of this tabernacle stuff is supposed to be a representation of what is in heaven. In fact, it goes on to say, look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So even the earthly ones do those things for their job. Therefore, it is necessary for this one, speaking of Jesus, also have something to offer. For if he were a priest on earth, for if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest. If Jesus' whole mission was just to come and be another person, he would not be a priest. I'm guessing he'd be a carpenter. Right? That's what he did. It's his father Joseph did. His earthly father did. But he certainly would not be a priest. Why not? Well, from the tribe of Levi, but look at, the, look at the language here. What does it say? Why? For if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. We already have plenty of earthly priests. We don't need any more. That's not what he came to do. But look at verse 5. These earthly priests, where do they serve? Who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So where they work, their tabernacle, their sanctuary on earth, is merely a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. And notice this. Again, verse 5. Who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was the divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So the pattern he was shown on the mountain, according to the Bible, was the pattern of heaven itself. He was shown the tabernacle in heaven and said, now you make it exactly like that. Okay, so the tabernacle on earth is merely a reflection or shadow of what is in heaven. By the way, Paul is not the only one to say this. Go back to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 You see Peter, I mean, you see Stephen just before his death giving this powerful sermon recounting the history of Israel. Page 1059 in your Pew Bible, Acts chapter 7. We'll start with verse 44. It says, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Okay, repeating this idea that this is the third time, the original we find in Exodus, we saw it in Hebrews, now we see it in Acts. They understand that Moses built this thing on a pattern that God showed them of what is in heaven. goes on to say, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for God of Jacob, for the God of Jacob. 
But Solomon built him a house. So there was the tabernacle in the wilderness was the portable one. Solomon ended up building him an actual, physical, permanent structure. However, he says, as nice as the tabernacle Moses built was, and as glorious and splendorous as the one that Solomon built, however, he said, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my what? Throne. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. So those, those tabernacles, even the grand Solomon's temple, all that was was a foretaste, a sample of what is in heaven. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? So it's fascinating. You see twice, you see the book of Hebrews and in the book of Acts, that the writers there understood clearly that what was in Israel's history was not the genuine tabernacle. It was simply a scale model of the real thing. And where was the real thing located? In heaven. Right? Heaven is my throne. No matter how beautiful of a structure you make here, it's just a man-made thing. But there is one that the Lord made and not man. And it's in heaven. Now, why did we go through all of this, what the rest of the camp looked like? Well, let's ask the question. Let's think of it logically. The reason God was so particular with his own dwelling place on earth is because he wanted it to be an accurate reflection of his dwelling place in heaven, right? He said, I have a throne in heaven. I want you to build it like that here. I have this, all in different furnishings. He said, exactly what I have in mind. I want you to make a copy, a replica of it. Don't get crazy. Don't make what you want. I'm telling you I want it to look like this because it looks like heaven, so let's take a logical, before we get to the Bible, just think about it logically. Why would the Lord be so particular about the arrangement of the rest of the camp? Because he wants it to look like heaven. All of Israel, the entire encampment, was supposed to be a shadow or a reflection of heaven, or if you will, heaven on earth. Watch. Go to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, page 1177 in your pew Bible. We're coming to the close here, but I want to show you this so you understand the significance of God's people on earth and what he wants to do with them. What's the purpose? Why did he take all his time and say it so specifically? Chapter 4 and verse 1. Now remember, Moses was shown on the mountain a view of the heavenly sanctuary and was told to make the earthly one exactly like the pattern he had been shown. Here in Revelation chapter 4, page 1177 in your pew Bible, Revelation 4, another prophet, this time the prophet John, is also shown heaven. Okay? Verse 1. After these things I look, and behold, a door standing open where? In heaven. So John's on earth, and he looks and he sees a door, in vision of course, but a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Notice, come up here, and I will show you things. Okay? In heaven, come up here, I'll show you things. By the way, very simple rule for life. If you ever see a door standing open in heaven, 
And you hear the voice of God say, come up here, I want to show you things. Go. Go. (laughs) John does, and watch what happens here. Verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit. Obviously, he's not physically transported, but he's given in vision. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, and of course behold means to look. He saw something. Behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. What's the very first thing he sees in his vision of heaven? The throne, and one sitting on the throne. Of course, there's only one person who sits on God's throne in heaven, and that's God, right? That's why that's one with a capital O. One sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Okay, so the first thing he sees is the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So there's the one main throne in the middle, of course, but around it are 24 other thrones. And there are people sitting on those, the elders, 24 elders sitting on their thrones. Fascinating. Now we'll go back to the throne now, verse 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. You know, brrr. What would you expect to see next as you're moving out? Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, you can look high and low in the book of Revelation, and you won't find the term the Holy Spirit. However, you'll see a lot of symbolism with numbers and colors and beasts and whatnot, and seven consistently always represents God, some attribute of God. And here are the seven spirits. This is the Holy Spirit of God. This is the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, right there before God the Father who's on his throne. Now, verse 6. Before the throne there was a sea of uh, glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Now we'll pause right here. We mentioned how, you know, in my hypothetical of going to Disney World, there's a banner, and on each banner, on each standard, on a flag, was an animal or some sort of emblem like that, right? And nations have the same thing, and typically they're animals. Typically that's what you find representing things. Colleges do this and all that kind of stuff. You want to represent, oh, we're the, we're the fighting this, or the, you know, probably not the peaceful that. I don't know why not, but. <laughs> but Jewish history tells us exactly what these standards of all the different camps, what their picture was that was on them. Fascinating. And by the way, you can probably take a guess. What animal, what picture, what image do you think would be on the flag representing the tribe of Judah? A lion. Of course, it's the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? And you can go around and you can find that not only did Judah was it represented by a lion, Reuben, the one on the south, was represented by a man, looked like a, a person's face, right? Ephraim was an ox or a calf, and Dan was an eagle. So in each cardinal direction around the earthly tabernacle, there would be a family tribe with this big banner waving, and you'd look up wherever you were, and you'd know which direction was north, south, east, or west, regardless of the sun, because they had these banners. And you would see either the calf, or the uh, uh, ox, I mean the ox, or the eagle, or the man, or the uh, lion, thank you, 
You'd see one of those, and you'd know where your family is in relation to those, and you could find your way home. Okay? This is apparently based also on a pattern in heaven. Watch this now. Again, verse 6, Before the throne was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and the back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Now that's fascinating to me. But as we go into chapter 5, if you notice chapter 4 is missing one key ingredient. You have the Father on the throne, the Spirit in front of the Father, but there's no mention of Jesus until we get to chapter 5 and verse 6. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. But now once Jesus comes into the picture in heaven, those seven spirits are sent out into all the earth. Okay? Now, There's one more group of people that hasn't been mentioned. Verse 11, chapter 5, verse 11. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many, what? Angels. Many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. So notice the throne is the middle. Then you have the living creatures, you have the 24 elders, and beyond that you saw this great many group of angels. And how many were there? Well, it says 10,000 times 10,000, which if I'm not mistaken, 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. That's a very large number. But beyond that, it says, and thousands of thousands. So this is a very large number, very large number, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing." So in heaven, if what John was shown was a throne in heaven with seven lamps burning before it, 24 other thrones surrounding it, the cardinal directions each had these four living creatures, an eagle, a lion, a man, and an ox, and beyond that he saw a great sea of angels. Friends, the reason that God was so particular about his own tent is because it's a reflection of what is in heaven. And the same reason is why he's so particular about the arrangement of the rest of the camp because what God wanted his people to be was a picture of heaven on earth. Okay? Think about that. In the Old Testament times, God wants to bring a people to a knowledge of himself. He wants to bring the world to himself. And so what he decides to do is literally replicate a scale model of heaven on earth. And of course, it wasn't just the physical structure. The laws of the land were unique. The character of the people was supposed to be unique. The moral code of that that family, that great nation, was supposed to be unique in all the earth. So when they came into this, they said, we don't understand all the pieces and parts, but it seems like heaven right here on earth. And the punchline of all of this, friends, is that I firmly believe, and we're going to see Scripture outlined, that God wants his people now to be a reflection of him in heaven. He wants his church on earth to be what some people 
will only see as a view of heaven. That they'll run into it and say, I don't understand everything about the doctrine. I don't understand everything about this, but you represent something that I want more of. I want to understand more. He wants his people to be a picture of heaven on earth. By the way, let's go to this one last text as we close down tonight. This understanding of the heavenly sanctuary and all those angels and all those focus on the middle of the throne and right there, if you recall, God's throne, of course, is represented by the Ark of the Testimony. And there are two angels that cover that. But they're not called angels, they're called cherubim, right? Two cherubs that cover the throne of God in the Ark of the Covenant. We've seen that language one other time in Scripture. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 28. Let me show you one last thing before we go. Page 830, right at the very bottom of 830 and 831 in your pew Bible, Ezekiel chapter 28. When it describes Lucifer, it tells us what job he had. Ezekiel 28, verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Can you imagine in your your mind's eye when God started instructing Moses, I want you to build this special building. And he started talking about each element of the furniture. And he got to the Ark of the Testimony and the mercy seat. And he says, and on that mercy seat, I want you to build craft out of gold, which represents purity, right? Holiness. Two angels that cover the mercy seat. As Satan watched that construction go on, what do you think he realized? That's where I used to be. That's the position I once held. I firmly believe that once that construction started, when he was listening to the plans for the sanctuary, that this fallen angel, Satan, recognized every piece and part. I've been there. In fact, I was that. Friends, when we work as God works, we're starting to remind Satan of what he used to be. But there's no reason anyone needs to fall from their position anymore. But as Satan saw that being built, he understood that this is a reflection of heaven and God's going to try to take his kingdom there and build it here. It reminds me very much of Luke chapter 11. When Jesus gave that model prayer, he prayed, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, how? As it is in heaven. The ultimate goal of Christianity is to represent the God of heaven to the fallen people of this earth. And he wants to create in his people today 
a little piece of heaven on earth. Has it made sense tonight? Praise the Lord. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you so much for being a God who has a very big picture view of the universe and a very specific plan for how you want your will to be carried forward. Lord, we want to be your people on the earth and we want to follow your plans. And Satan wants, us to, tempt, wants to tempt us to diverge from our plans, or your plan and do according to our own will. Though we don't see the big plan, we trust that you do. And Lord, like you did with ancient Israel, we ask that you do with us today. Turn us into your people on earth that reflect the principles and the character of our King in heaven. Let people, when they see us, the Christian church, the, the body of Christ here on earth, help them to get a glimpse of the glory of God. Not because we're so great, but because we serve faithfully and are obedient to a God who is great. And his ultimate aim is to reconcile all people to himself. Lord, let us be your people. Let us be a reflection of heaven right here on earth. For we pray it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.